Hello all. Welcome to this episode of Influx, a podcast hosted by the Center for Internet and Society, where we discuss technology, policy, politics and so much more. My name is Shweta Mohandas and I am joined by my colleague Pranav. Hi everyone. And all the way from Toronto, we have Tasneem. Hi everyone, thanks Shweta for the intro, excited to be here. Tasneem is a researcher at the Center for Internet and Society and she worked on a survey of identification methods for gender and sexuality of data subjects. This research was started by another researcher, Saman Gudarsi, and Tasneem built upon her work. So Tasneem, can you tell us a little more about what this project is and what the survey involved? So this project is an examination of quantitative studies which aim to determine the gender and or sexuality along with other latent attributes of a variety of individuals, mostly via social media networks. And what my work involved in doing this survey is looking at a series of papers, I think 30 plus papers, and writing critical annotations for each. Critical annotation meaning identifying what the data set the authors, what data set the authors are looking at, uh, how it is that they go about examining this data set through uh, any quanti- through a quantitative analysis, and uh, what the implications of that are, what assumptions that they're making, and kind of seeing what assumptions that they're taking for granted and how this affects the evaluation of their results. So while there are a lot of unique and really fun studies that, that you have covered in this research, uh, I remember reading about the paper which dealt with identifying the gender of the person through their Twitter background colors. I think, uh, considering you've already read the papers, which is your favorite paper? Which of the paper did you find most interesting? Or you can name some of the important insights or facts that came out of some of the most interesting papers you've read. So there's a lot of papers that I can talk about here. But I think the paper that I'd like to talk about in terms of the shock value that I experienced while reading it is about using facial cues to determine sexual orientation. And there are actually two papers in the papers that were studied uh, that discuss this. The first that I'd like to talk about is called The Roles of Featural and Configural Face Processing and Snap Judgments of Sexual Orientation. So from the title, I think we can already tell that this is gonna be you know, quite interesting. <laughs> and the goal of this experiment was to test um, how adaptations of configural and featural face features. So configural being the distance between individual features and featural being the individual features themselves. How adaptations in those two features change the accuracy of people's ability to judge someone's sexual orientation based on seeing their face for one second. Really, one of the main questions beyond the authors want to see if there's a statistical difference between people being able to judge someone's sexual orientation uh, as configural and featural face features change and as they manipulate them. 
But I think something that added to the shock value for me the most was the fact that the authors really are trying to see if presenting faces that are upside down will significantly impact people's ability to judge sexual orientation and whether it would have a lower accuracy rate than upright pictures. And so that was kind of the main question. And I think the fact that that was the main question on top of sexual orientation being judged by facial features that are presented to people for one second. The fact that the question was, okay, does it make a difference if the faces are upright or upside down? And that was like the point really of the study. I think that's what kind of was the most jarring thing for me. Right. So the study similar to the study that done by Stanford where using machine learning to figure out the sexual orientation of a person, but here they were requiring, they actually had people to take snap judgments about that. So just doing a similar study. The, the people who are responsible for, you know, making these snap judgments mm-hmm. are actually university students of, I'm assuming, the professors and the academics who are writing this paper. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of experiments done in this paper because they're testing both configural and featural features of faces. Mm. Um, and so for each experiment, they got around 30 students to kind of participate and be the people who are doing these snap judgments. Mm-hmm. And they had to be, they were compensated with partial course credit, which again, even that I find very interesting. The fact that those are the people and that's the group of people who are required to carry the study out. Because otherwise, I, I mean, at least personally, I don't know if <laughs> these researchers would be able to find participants if they weren't students who were being offered course credit. And then in terms of the faces themselves that were used in this experiment, it was collected from public Facebook profiles. Right. Does the study talk about how they sourced it or the methodology for getting these data? Did they ask for consent or anything like that? So the paper does not mention any form of consent. It was, it was really, there was an assumption that, oh, if your Facebook profile is public, And if you have publicly stated whether or not you're straight or gay, um, then it's fair game. Then we can use this data. We can scrap your images from your profile, manipulate them uh, for the purposes of our experiment, and then use them. So, uh, yeah. So in terms of like who is participating and how the data is collected, they're both a little dubious. And so this is the experiment, right? Upside down, upright faces let's judge sexual orientation based on faces. And there's a lot going on here in terms of the assumptions that the authors are making, right? And what we can infer. So one of the things that the authors state in the paper is that sexual orientation is less obvious as opposed to race and gender. And so studying what exactly people perceive as significant features of someone's face to determine their sexual orientation is something worth studying. Another thing that they say is, according to the accuracy rate and percentage that they use to evaluate the results, there is they determine that there is a high accuracy, and they and because of that, they say that sexual orientation is distinct is is easily distinguishable by facial features. This is the conclusion that they come to. They're very confident about the fact that people can take snap judgments about a person by just looking at their facial features. Exactly. And I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, right? I mean, you're falsely representing gender, race and sexuality by assuming that they're static. You are saying that basically the features and the snap judgments are in the way that they're doing this experiment are obviously based on arbitrary societal constructions and conditioning and stereotypes that surround what is a gay face and what is a straight face when really there is 
that doesn't exist. It's just something that is a convention that people have subscribed to through mainstream representations of these people. Right. And when was this paper released? Like which year? Uh, this was in 2012. So it's a relatively new paper also. Yeah. So, I mean, I, another thing that the authors mentioned is that the, the reason that it's important to be able to recognize and judge if someone is gay or straight is because uh, there's a stigma surrounding being gay or straight. And so uh, they're basically they're saying, well, if it's so easy to judge someone's sexual orientation based on their face, then why is there so much stigma? That's That's kind of the question that they're asking. Like, if it's so obvious then why are we stigmatizing it so much? Which <laughs> I don't think is a question that needs to be asked. One, because I think they don't understand what stigma is. Stigma does not arise because sexual orientation is visible or invisible. It's not like, oh, we can't see it, so there's a stigma around it, or oh, we can see it, so there shouldn't be any stigma. It's born out of the cultural and structural and legal injustices that these group of people have been facing for years. <laughs> so I think the thing that stands out to me most about this paper is that the methodology and the data set and the labor, the student labor that it requires is so divorced from the reality and uh, the social reality and societal reality of sexual orientation. And the whole point of the paper, the questions that are being asked seem so irrelevant and um I, I mean, it's just, wh why are these questions being asked was my main reaction to this paper. I still don't understand why this is something that needs to be asked and why it's something that, as an, and also it doesn't really take into account the fact that, you know, there's a lot of safety issues for a lot of uh, LGBTQ plus folks in various contexts. And this is obviously conducted in the US, but I mean, Imagine doing a study like this where there's even more stigma and even more injustice um, inflicted upon like this group of people within a certain political uh, context. And so just the, the fact I don't, I, I'm trying to I keep trying to understand what this question was born out of and why it exists and why it's something that was asked. And every time I just keep getting mind boggled as to why this is something that is being that is being studied. And so that's a one one of the papers that looks at facial features. Right. Oh, did you find any other ways in which facial recognition was dealt with by maybe other papers that you read in the study? Different methodologies that they practiced? So another paper that did also focus on facial cues is called Sexual Orientation Perception Involves Gendered Facial Cues. And it does kind of ask similar questions. It doesn't ask the upright, upside down question, but it asks if gender inversion, which re which basically means um, masculine faces looking more feminine and feminine faces looking more masculine, if that affects sexual orientation judgment from a face. Um, however, this one is different. One, because it's split into three studies. The first two studies, um, the first study looks at computer-generated faces and the second study looks at uh, human faces, and they both ask Okay, if gender inversion increases, how does this affect uh, someone's ability to judge sexual orientation of a face? Um, which really falls along the same lines as the previous paper that I mentioned in terms of the assumptions and the inferred assumptions uh, that go along with that. However, this one is slightly different because there's a third study, and the third study 
tests the blatant kind of assumptions that are in the first two studies, which is that they both rely on very stereotypical and controlled uh, changes to faces to make so quote unquote accurate judgments of sexual orientation. And so the third study um, exists to test whether or not this accuracy continues um, at the same level if non-stereotypical faces are introduced into the mix. So ones that haven't been highly controlled by computers or by the experiment, by the, by the researchers, but that are just a face, that is a face of a person that isn't uh, stereotypically obviously one way or the other. And if that changes the participant's ability to judge whether or not this face is heterosexual or homosexual. Again, whether or not that question should be asked is a question on its own. But I think this one improves upon the other paper because it recognizes, well, there's a stereotype here that we're relying on to get the results of our previous two experiments. What happens if we shake it up and if we put faces that are just normal faces, which are all faces of all people of all sexual orientations, and how does that change the accuracy? Is there anything else that is a bit more self-aware in the sense the paper knows that the limitations of a type of study like this or knows that these are the problems with conducting a study identifying the gender sexuality of people? In contrast to, I guess, both by intellectual and personal reaction to the previous paper, another paper uh, that was less concerning, at least for me, was is called Man is to Computer Programmer as Woman is to Homemaker. Debiasing Word Embeddings. So, this paper, um, I think it was less concerning for me because it looks at uh, how word embeddings act as a repository for a software. So it is essentially concerned with understanding um, and identifying a word embedding of a, of a corpus of data and then trying to figure out, well, uh, first of all, recognizing that it is likely that there are biases um, that conform to gender norms and roles within those word embeddings, within a certain cluster of word embeddings within that data. And secondly, the point of this paper and the point of this experiment is to test whether or not these word embedding biases can be neutralized and can be softened by inserting other neutralizing and less gender-specific conventionally gender-specific terms into a certain world, word cluster. Um, and I thought that was really interesting because the basis of the experiment is not necessarily to determine gender or to determine sexuality. It's actually to study whether or not um, the biases that are inherent and implicit within this data, within several uh, different data corpuses, can be neutralized and can be um, softened. So the, the data corpus that they look at here is from Google News. And the authors actually state that they originally hypothesized that because Google News is curated by professional journalists, that it wouldn't have as many you know, gender biases within the word embeddings that come out of that data corpus. What, but that, in fact, did not turn out to be true. Um, and throughout the paper, the authors keep mentioning, you know, the pervasive nature of 
these biases and how inherent they are. And they also discuss, you know, the dangers of this existing as within raw data, because um, with the advent of a lot of machine learning technologies and AI, this is the data, like whatever data that we have right now, the raw data that exists for whatever purpose will be input into these machine learning and AI tools and machines. Um, and that will reproduce these biases that um, are integrated into uh, various data online. Um, and so the fact that they recognize this and they see this as a problem and they see this as something that is circuitous and needs to be fixed is something that I found very interesting. After reading all these articles, what are your main learnings or takeaways from the study that you conducted? I learned a lot from the work that was done in this survey. Uh, the papers that I've outlined before and discussed are relatively extreme examples of the, the kind of quantitative studies surveyed. A lot of the stu studies surveyed you know, use linguistic attributes or color or pictures or different kind of social media aspects and interactions between individuals to study latent attributes, obviously, namely gender and sexuality. And most of them assume, you know, that gender is a binary, male, female, that sexual orientation is a binary, gay, straight. And only, I think I remember only one of the papers having a caveat at the end being saying, oh, we do not assume to know anything about the social nature and the construct of gender. This is a study that we are doing. So that assumption is kind of common among a lot of these papers. And I think that spurred me to kind of ask, well, how many of these authors are asking themselves why? Like when they do the study, when they come up with the question, when they come up with their methodology, when they're collecting their data set, are they asking, okay, how am I collecting this data set? Is it ethical? Am I just scraping social media content without consent? Why is this a study that's important? Does it relate to a certain sector? Even if I am talking about advertising and targeted advertising or studying people's consumer behavior based on their gender, what is really the significance of that and what are the implications? Am I putting a certain group or population at risk by doing this? Am I considering safety? In what context would, work? would it not work? And so these are a lot of questions that I think aren't being asked and the answers to which are just non-existent when it comes to a lot of these surveys. And I'm talking generally, of course, there are some papers that ask this. There are some papers that ask about fairness. There are some papers that, you know, talk about ways that the, the marriage between quantitative and qualitative studies can exist and be better, specifically going beyond you know, just being like, oh, data sciences exist in social sciences, and that's important for development because we love data-driven development. Some papers go beyond that and say, well, maybe we can have quantitative studies be the explanatory and scaled up version of finding patterns and trends that can be qualitatively analyzed, questioned, and discussed. And so there is a lot of room for potential. I, I just think one, one of the main things that I got out of this is, well, I think these questions need to be asked in a more genuine way and there's a potential for them to be answered in an effective way which would improve a lot of the studies in terms of their the value and the contribution that they can make beyond just contributing to other studies that already exist or having a bigger data set. I think another thing is that I don't want to discount 
trying to determine the gender of an individual completely in the way that it's done in most of these surveys it's definitely problematic i mean i don't think you really need to know someone's gender through their twitter profile color and i don't know how much information that will give you within any sector whether that's advertising or public health or anything but there is a need for disaggregated data in a lot of different areas again that varies in terms of political context legal context but there is a paper in the survey on health for example conducted by the Fenway Institute in the United States where they're trying to see okay what's the best way to kind of ask questions to patients about their sexuality in in a way that makes them feel comfortable so that healthcare professionals can address inequities that they face in their healthcare experiences because of the lack of care that they receive and the lack of attention that's given to that population. And so there is a way to go about it and there is a need for it in certain sectors. However, there needs to be a really big ethical reckoning in these quantitative studies. And a lot of them are also I think it's important to note conducted in the global north with some in China and some in Europe. And so I'd be interested in seeing, you know, whether or not these things translate to the global south or how it's different. And I guess the last thing that I'd say is that I learned a lot about a lot more about statistical methodology and computer programming languages than I expected, you know, reading these things that I would not have otherwise read. And I think that in itself is important because I think there should be more collaboration between, you know, social scientists, computer scientists, data scientists. Because there's a lot for us to there's a lot for me to learn in terms of all these methodologies and I think there's a, a lot a lot for computer scientists and data scientists to learn in terms of the social implications of their work. Thank you Tasne for this insightful look into the different articles that you've read. Uh, can you tell me more about the project and where I can find all the articles and the work that you have done? This is part of the Big Data for Development Research Grant under which CIS has published various research projects around the use of big data. Uh, you can find this output which contains critical annotations to 33 research papers uh, including the ones mentioned in this episode in the reading list. Thank you so much Ashni we had a great and insightful conversation and thank you so much for the listeners for listening to this podcast episode. Don't forget to go through the reading list and read more about the work that we discussed. Thank you so much Brenda Benchweta for having me here. I really enjoyed having this conversation with you. Uh be sure to tune in next episode for more interesting and exciting discussions. This episode was produced by the folks at the Center for Internet and Society. Intro music Fish Attack by Alpha Hydrate. Outro music Palette de Will by Quickweed. <laughs>